Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what will be a really terrific conversation on adherence to asthma biologics. Today, we are fortunate to have Drs. Rank and Costello as our guests. We'll be discussing Dr. Rank's article entitled, Adherence to Asthma Biologics, Implications for Patient Selection, Step Therapy, and Outcomes. We'll also be discussing Dr. Costello's accompanying editorial. So why don't we go ahead and uh, introduce our guest, uh, Dr. Rank? Thank you very much, Dr. Pepper. I'm Matt Rank. I'm an allergy and immunology physician at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. I'm board certified in allergy immunology, pediatrics, and internal medicine. And I'm professor of medicine in the Mayo Clinic Alex School of Medicine. And I work and live in Phoenix, Arizona. Thanks for joining Hi. us, Matt. Um, Dr. Costello, please go ahead. Hi, uh, Richard Costello from Dublin. I'm a professor of medicine. I'm a clinician scientist, so I do both uh, clinical practice and research. And I'm the um, Education Council Chair for the European Respiratory Society. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Richard. So why don't we go ahead and get started? We'll start with you, Richard. So today we'll be talking about uh, asthma biologics. So maybe you could tell us why is adherence to asthma inhaled therapies and asthma biologics so important? Well, it's really important in a lot of ways. Um, the first, I think, is that um, at an individual level, um, clinicians work in a little information void, which is that they really can't uh, be certain that the medicines that they've prescribed patients um, have been taken by the patients. Um, and some of it is because the, uh, the, the, the patients don't want to share that information because it, it really looks kind of like a rejection of the, the previous interaction they've had with the clinician. But sometimes you, you just don't remember what you, what you forgot to do. Um, uh, and sometimes people can unintentionally not take their treatments, particularly inhaled treatments, correctly. So um, on the one hand, there's this kind of uh, issue uh, where a clinician and a patient, particularly the clinician following up with the patient, isn't aware that the person has used their treatment correctly. At a macro level, it isn't, it, it, this works out at a system level that the clinician, not knowing that the patient hasn't taken it, will tend to escalate treatment. Um, and there's no guarantee that that treatment will be taken. Um, but many times, neither the clinician nor the patient really understands that that hasn't happened. And only when you look at a system level where you see the uh, the next, you know, major uh, complication occurring of not using the treatment starts to unfold. So for an asthma patient, it may be that there's a major advance in their treatment or they have exacerbations. In diabetes, it may be the guy not taking his diabetes treatment and the next thing, their their um, diabetes escalates at a cardiovascular level, and they're having a bypass, uh, or a hypertensive who hasn't taken his or her blood pressure pills, and the next thing is they they they've had a, a major uh, cerebrovascular accident. 
So it's important at that clinician level, and it's important at a uh, at a system level and an economic level uh, for healthcare systems and insurance companies. So there's definitely implications of uh, non-adherence. So maybe, uh, Richard, you could just tell us what are the differences between inhaled therapies versus biologics um, that would make uh, adherence challenging for each of them? Well, yeah, thanks. So I think in the from an inhaled point of view, um, this is a the, the, we're looking at people um, being issued a prescription. They 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 have to take that prescription to their to their pharmacy, um, ensure that that's on uh, that it's on the formulary in the pharmacy that they have the money to to cover it. They uh, then have to take it home and to remember to take it. Um, and we we know, depending on the particular inhaler device, there's quite a heterogeneity in how effectively people take their treatment. And, you know, it kind of stands to reason if you don't see much benefit taking a treatment, uh, you know, if you're taking your inhaled treatment incorrectly, you might just give up on it and just say, look, this thing doesn't work. So from, from the point of view of a patient, um, inhaled treatment prescriptions are really quite uh, quite a challenge, and the onus of, of the execution of it correctly really falls in their um, ballpark. For biologics, these are generally uh, medicines are going to be administered um, in uh, a physician's practice somewhere or in a, in a hospital. There are some programs for home administration, but many of them are quite closely supervised. So you have, in some ways, a sort of a uh, a, a slightly better in a better built-in insurance that the person is going to be adherent. Now, for sure, some people um, may, you know, stop coming. They may uh, decide that they don't, the biologics not for them or they can't organize themselves to come for their appointments on time. But generally, the, the scale of non-adherence opportunities are less with uh, biologics than they are with, with inhaled treatments. Well, thanks for setting the stage for us, Richard. So I'm going to turn to Matt. Matt, uh, you um, published this article with your colleagues. So maybe you could give us the rationale for um, your work and um, why you decided to address this topic. Sure. Um, I think, as Richard said, this is a problem we commonly encounter as clinicians. We um, have read quite a bit about adherence to inhaled therapies, particularly inhaled steroids. And we were encountering patients who were not adherent to inhaled corticosteroids, who weren't doing well, and who we were working with to try to improve adherence and not getting very far in some cases. We wondered if, and then we would see patients uh, in, our, in our asthma clinics who were poorly adherent to their inhaled steroids, but would be prescribed asthma biologic. And we began to think about how these are very different behavior behaviors in, in order to be adherent to these different treatments. How Richard had mentioned, a biologic may be a, an injection that you receive every two weeks or every four weeks, as opposed to an inhaler you may have to take twice per day. Most of what we think we see in our clinic with non-adherence to inhaled steroids, for example, we believe to be non-intentional. Habits are just not formed very well, and people just forget to do what they're supposed to do. For some families, it seemed that it was easier for them to come get an injection once per month than it was to remember to take their inhaler 60 times a month. So we began to ask the question and wonder about whether uh, we could describe adherence to asthma biologics using uh, this, this claims data set that we'll, that we'll talk about a little bit more here in just a minute 
And we wanted to describe the factors that were associated with adherence to asthma biologics and then the relationship with the adherence to inhaled steroids. And we wanted to kind of get an idea if there were some families or some patients where we could potentially accept lower adherence to inhaled steroids but still treat with asthma biologic. Now, there are a lot of things to talk about there, and in Richard's editorial, he raises many of these important questions about, about step therapy, about patient selection, and about how, how all of this uh, potentially impacts outcomes. But really, we also had surveyed the literature a bit, and there isn't a lot of information about adherence to asthma biologics. There's far more information about adherence to inhaled steroids. And we also thought that the economics and the insurance was just different for asthma biologics than it was for inhaled, inhaled treatment too. So we kind of set out saying that these would be, you know, our, our, our hypothesis, what we set out to answer was we, we really thought that adherence to inhaled steroids would not be associated with adherence to biologics. We thought they would be separate, sort of separate um, behaviors. Great. Thanks for uh, describing your, your study. So maybe you could jump into the study methods first, and then after that, uh, give us your primary findings, and then we'll turn to Dr. Costello after that. Matt? Yes, excellent. So this is an observational study design. We use the data set called Optum Labs Data Warehouse, which is one of the largest, if not the largest, claims data set within the U.S., um, it's primarily commercially insured with the Medicare Advantage patients who are part of the data set. And we looked at people who took asthma biologics from about 2003 when asthma biologics omalizumab first became available in the U.S. until October of 2019, which is just when we sort of censored our data set for the purposes of this study. We report this thing called pro proportion of days covered. So this is a... Um, a measure of how many days out of out of the time period, basically as a proportion, would that patient have gotten that medicine? So you can do that for biologic if you're getting an every four-week injection and you receive it um, this date and then you receive another one in 28 days and another one in 28 days. Well, you you've got a 1.0 proportion for that for that time period. Similarly with refills. Um, of the inhalers, we can um, basic we, we can um, uh, calculate a similar measure. We looked at a time frame around the initiation of biologics, so we looked six months before and six months after at these different um, proportion of days covered, as well as a number of other a number of other factors that we thought could influence adherence behavior. We used a cutoff for the proportion of days covered of 0.75. We, we selected this based on some other information in the literature suggesting higher than this is associated with meaningful outcomes. And then we selected a bunch of variables, a bunch of independent variables for our multivariable analysis, things like age, sex, insurance, race, ethnicity, um, some comorbid conditions that we thought might be important for asthma outcomes, and tried to figure out if we thought that inhaled steroid adherence and um, biologic adherence were related. And the answer to our hypothesis was that we did find a weak, a weak but statistically significant relationship between somebody's inhaled steroid adherence prior to starting biologics. It wasn't wasn't very strong. Um, it's certainly a lot stronger relationship to show the six months of adherence to inhaled steroids before starting biologics compared to the six months after 
after biologics for enhanced steroids, those relationships hold really well. Those, the odds ratio for that was something like nine. The odds ratio for the association between adherence to inhaled steroid and to, to biologic was, was much smaller. It was, um, in fact, um, um, just, just above one. Um, the, other, the other findings I want to highlight here um, are related to some of the different, um, are related to our um, attempt to link some of these uh, um, adherence measures to the outcomes. So the main outcome that we have available within a, a claims data set like this are asthma exacerbations as defined by using an oral steroid linked to an asthma visit and as defined by emergency department and hospitalizations that have an asthma diagnosis in the primary position. So we, we have this asthma exacerbation outcome. As, as both of you know, and, and many of the listeners will know, this is one of the main outcomes that has been selected for the various asthma biologic trials. So we wanted to see if adherence to inhaled steroid or adherence to biologic were linked to these asthma exacerbation outcomes. And in fact, we, we did not find a strong link there either. So the, um, the uh, percent days or the proportion days covered for both biologics and inhaled steroids were not linked to a reduction in asthma exacerbations, which is something that we expected to find, uh, sorry, we expected to find a relationship and, and didn't. Um, a couple of things I want to highlight um, just to give some sense of the numbers here. So the, we, we had about 5,000 individuals in this study who we identified as starting biologic and who had adequate coverage and, and data for the time periods we needed. The, pro, the proportion days covered for asthma biologics um, are 0.76, and 61% we're above that threshold of 0.75 that we thought might be, was important. For inhaled corticosteroids, that, that PDC proportion days covered is 0.44 in the six months leading up to biologic initiation and 0.40. So almost half of what the biologic is. So the first the conclusion we might draw is that it appears that adherence to biologic is higher than adherence to inhaled corticosteroids. Um, then... Um, let's see. Then we, we looked at a bunch of different factors to try to decide if some of those factors may be responsible for driving these adherence behaviors. And we certainly found several, several different factors that we thought could be important um, that appear to be related to biologic adherence behaviors. And then finally, again, we tried to link this with outcome, with asthma exacerbation outcomes with all the different independent variables we had. And the adherence variables were not significant. The only variable we identified as being significant um, for having asthma exacerbation reduction was not having COPD. Um, so that was one of our independent variables. Um, I think I'm going to stop there for a moment, um, Dominique and Richard, and, and, and allow Richard and others to either uh, ask questions or to weigh in. Richard, please go ahead. Uh, you had a chance oh, yeah, to review this paper. I did, <laughs> and um, and Matt, I think I think firstly you you guys have to be congratulated. I mean, it's it's a question that clinicians um, who manage patients with severe asthma who they transition up to a biologic uh, often say to themselves, you know, why am I seeing these really superb um, responses? And you know, it's. Uh, we had our own experience uh, looking at our registry of, of patients in Ireland 
um, who started on on Amazumab um, many years ago, and we found a, a really an extraordinary. Uh, in contrast to yours, but but maybe individual clinicians are seeing it uh, in their own practices. We found that some of the people that we put on the biologics were actually having these amazing clinical responses, way better than the trial data, and that isn't something you normally see. And so we started to say to ourselves, well, you know, we're wrapping a blanket of care around these people, so um, you know, we're 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 solving some issue for them. And you 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 raise this as you know as the kind of the origin of your hypothesis. Um, so with that, because I'm always interested in, in understanding people's hypothesis, you know, the true hypothesis, uh, the, the kind of the, the motivator to do this study, was it, was it that observation that, that you thought um, that, you know, it, it was a simple improvement that you were seeing or you, the fact that they were coming along or was it just you were curious because we know ICS adherence is bad and here they all seem to be coming up? So I'm, I'm curious to know where your motivation comes. Um, not because I have any trap questions, but just to kind of walk through from an outsider how the study reads. Um, so was there anything else in, in that point, you know? A couple of things. It, we, we run it through asthma clinic in children, and one of the things we were encountering as we um, were thinking about escalating care for biologic for some children is we got feedback from insurance companies that would say, um, we're not going to cover this because the adherence and the fill rates for the um, inhaled steroids are too low. And then we have other patients that come in, and we track we track inhaler refills, and we do um, other ways to try to judge and assess adherence in our clinic, where they would be getting their omalizumab injections, say every two weeks or every four weeks, and been doing very well. And then we look at their inhaled steroid fills, and lo and behold, they were very poor. They likely yeah. had very low covers of inhaled steroids, but again, they were still clinically doing quite well. Then. Um, if you look pretty carefully at the literature for the asthma biologic, I think you'll both know that just about every asthma biologic study that's been performed has inhaled steroids as the backbone. So, the, so people are taking inhaled steroids while taking asthma biologics. And you might think that some of the mechanisms for these drugs may overlap. And so it kind of makes me wonder a little bit about model therapy with asthma biologics versus yeah. <laughs> um, dual yeah. therapy with inhaled steroids. And so that kind of raised the question a little bit as well. And some of the stuff we saw in the paper made me wonder about that as well. You know, yeah, no, I, I think you're right, Matt. And I think that's a great question. And it's sort of the, the sort of nobody wants to ask question is like, if these are amazing, um, you know, drugs that are targeting a particular molecular pathway that's largely being covered by corticosteroids, why do we need to do both? And I think people are beginning to, you know, that, 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 as I said, people are afraid to ask that. I think there may be one or two studies starting to, to look at that. But, but you know, it's interesting, Matt, um, and I don't know if uh, it's just uh, worth commenting on. Um, one, of the, one of the students who worked with me did a systematic review of all of the, all of the uh, add-on studies. Um, in other words, the, the, where there were biologics initiated, and they, and they so you just went through the method section to look at how many patients that had their adherence to their ICS lab checked uh, and how they were checked and where they checked during the studies. And of the 68 studies that have been done with uh, add-on therapies of various levels since 2010, um, in, uh, in something like only uh, 10 was adherence commented on to the ICS lab. And... Um, and in those, there wasn't monitoring of the ICS lava treatment during the, the, the step-on phase. 
doesn't seem like a terribly important uh, comment, and it certainly shouldn't if you've randomized your patients equally. It shouldn't affect the effect, but it did actually. And what it did was with some modeling, we showed that the sample size required to overcome sort of the, the lowish levels of adherence that you might anticipate, even in the setting of a clinical trial, meant that the, the, the sample sizes were often uh, um, not um, not achieved um, and subjective measures, but not objective measures uh, uh, w- were different. So people who, in whom there was no attempt to do any sort of adherence checking tended to have little improvement in FEV1 and exacerbations. And in those that were, there were stricter kind of measures of, of adherence, you know, like even just doing pharmacy refills, there were, there were more likely to have significant results in things like peak flow change or an FEV1. So it's a nuanced point, but in a way, you know, you'd have thought in trials that it should have been done, but like we've, we've seen in practice, there aren't. So you've, you know, your study is raising one really important point is like, and, and we're obviously not going to be getting, able to get an answer from, from your study, but it does raise a future studies idea. Do we need ICS if we've got a biologic? And I think um, that, that that's really a really good one. But Matt, I wanted to throw it back to you because you obviously can't answer every question from a database. But when the, one of the reasons why I found adherence an interesting thing to, to study is, is because when, you, when one goes through the literature uh, and sort of addresses the, 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 you know, why don't people take their treatment, it comes down to things like their, and, and Rob Horn is a psychologist in, the, in UCL in London, the beautiful framework, he says, if there aren't barriers in the way, like cost or just organizing your life, it's a sort of a, it's a balance, a sort of seesaw of your necessities and concerns. And, you know, clinicians in the Mayo Clinic, clinicians in Dublin, that's the essence of medicine. Um, are we listening? Are we able to pull out those questions? Um, so when we have somebody who's non-adherent, it isn't like a, a judgment. It's an opportunity to have a conversation. So I was wondering, have you, have you thought about that in your practice? And do you think that's something that the, the listeners to this podcast should take away as a message that if there's poor adherence and we're simply treating it with another drug, are we failing our patients in, in, in some way? Yeah, I, I think we are. I think we often fail our patients in these ways. We often fail to understand, um, I think, the, the problems with adherence and the challenges. And I, and when I was interpreting the results of these studies, and I'm interested in your, both of your takes on this as well, I thought, um, well, just how effective are the things that I'm doing to try to improve adherence? Certainly, I mm. can point to several, several families, mm. several adults who, um, uh, who I think I've I, I made a difference and we've had better adherence and better outcomes. But if I read the, uh, the Normansol uh, systematic review correctly, there were two kind of key findings in that systematic review. The first was that the currently available interventions have a fairly modest impact on the overall improvement in adherence, maybe ranging something like 10% or 20% better. So that's one thing. It's good that we can do something to improve adherence, even if it's modest. On the other hand, those same studies really didn't show a clear link to improved outcomes with that modest improvement in adherence. So the question becomes, do we currently have the tools we need to make adherence better? Um, and um, I, I would argue that most clinicians aren't even assessing adherence properly, much less you know, thinking about applying tools to, um, to improve adherence. And so if that's the case, 
we either need to build out that science and and find better ways to improve adherence, um, find make it easier for people to be adherent to their medicines, or we need to think about alternatives. If we can't, yeah. um, and again, I, I have several families and several patients who, despite all the things that I can possibly think of, despite working with them longitudinally, multiple visits, um, despite spending the time necessary with them, they just can't get this adherence thing down. And it makes me wonder, maybe, maybe the best way to approach this person would be to use a different type of medicine that may allow them to be adherent more, even though maybe inhaled steroids would work fantastically well for them. They're not working well for them now because of the adherence problem. Maybe that's, maybe that's the situation where biologic would lead to a better outcome, albeit potentially at a much higher cost. I, well, Mal, I think you made, I think that's, that is just the, the the nature of it. For the for the listeners who are in practice, I I think you've just you've said it said it beautifully. We don't have the tools at present in our hands to to really objectively measure adherence, nor the skill set to to work through those nuances of um, uh, of the concerns versus motivations and and even the barriers. Um, but one thing I would say to you is that there is a whole pipeline of of digitally enabled inhalers and 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 from them feedback uh, that you know uh, give give the opportunity for at least for some selected patients to take an alternative route, which is to do some biofeedback based on adherence in a non-confrontational way, open way, saying you know these are the challenges. Look, I I see that you're not using your inhaler at night, and uh, but you're using it in the morning. Maybe um, maybe you should remember to. To when you plug in your phone, you know, put it beside you, or, or you have complete non-engagement of some patients, and you you recognise that 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 you know the the struggle is just not worth it. But but I think in the absence of of an objective measurement of adherence, it's really hard to work on adherence. But I would say about the systematic review, it's a great methodology, but it lacks the nuance of working out um, that there are many many causes of poor adherence. Uh, and um, and so you're right. I don't think there's one uh, there's one um, one intervention that's going to that's going to sort of nail adherence. Generally, the studies have shown a lift and uplift. But the devil is in the detail. And what happens is that in some people you get an amazing response, in others you get none, and it sort of all averages out at a, as a, at a lift. Um, and um, because there's a heterogeneity in the populations, uh, you know, some getting these great responses and others getting almost none, it's it's difficult to push through a clinical response. Um, and uh, and actually, I wondered if that was the reason why you're not seeing this improvement in the biologics, um, because you know, by all measure, um, there's an amazing similarity in all of the results of the the various asthma biologics. They're reducing exacerbations by an amazing fifty percent, regardless of you know, of the whether it's a receptor antagonist or a, um, or a direct cytokine inhibitor and which pathway it's 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 targeting, um, it it makes you wonder if uh, the fact that you didn't see a lift in this you know this huge warehouse as it were of of, of data that that in there there were some people with amazing responses and some because they didn't have. Um, you know they're they're asthma all uh, readied and corrected and and phenotyped properly, and uh, that they weren't they weren't getting the response. So that's why you were seeing this this limited um, 
uh, this limited overall response. So did you get actually just on that line, did, and, and maybe to help us to understand that, did you see a variance in the uh, level of response within the, uh, the the biologic treated patients? I know your overall lift sure. was modest. Yeah, it was. Uh, so our odds ratio is 1.15 and the mm. confidence interval is 0.97 to 1.36. So it was you know, kind of bordering on a very modest, modest improvement with the biologic PDC mm. um, proportion days covered associated with it. The, um, the the main, again, the main independent variable that was associated with outcome was not having COPD. And in fact, mm. surprisingly, um, both in this paper and in previous work we've done in the same database, there's a pretty high percentage of people who have at least claims diagnoses of COPD who receive biologics. And we intentionally did not exclude these people for our study because we wanted to describe you know, what was happening in clinical practice. And I wonder if those uh, patients in particular sort of um, uh, are phenotypically less likely to respond uh, to, mm. these, to these drugs. So mm. I think that's one potential thing that could explain some of those, some of our um, results. One, Richard one, and um, Matt, uh, yeah, I just want to interject here. So um, I, it's been fascinating hearing this conversation because, uh, and Richard, you brought up this issue of the psychology of adherence, and we as physicians may tend to project that, you know, that our patients should follow our prescription and be able to take mm-hmm. it, you know, twice a day as prescribed, but it's actually pretty onerous. <laughs> twice a day, every single day yeah. for a month, uh, 60 things. Whereas if we were able to give, as you said, an injection, you know, once uh, every four weeks or sometimes even once every eight weeks, um, we'd be able to markedly improve adherence. So would you say that in the well, future I... we could see um, uh, situations where instead of giving patients inhaled steroids, we're doing biologics and what would it take to get there in terms of cost and safety? Yeah, well, I think that's the the issue. I mean, because um, the the this would be uh, a relatively uh, straightforward discussion in some ways if the costs were equivocal. But you know, uh, the the cost of an inhaled corticosteroid lava combination is is obviously quite a degree of money. But it's maybe in the you know low thousands per per annum. Obviously, healthcare systems vary. But to biologics, maybe uh, fifty thousand um, per annum. So that's that's a per person cost. Obviously, there's not massive numbers of people in your study, although there's a huge database, um, and you've obviously uh, refined down that there may well have been more people started on the treatment. But in the end, I think it's the it's the kind of the societal cost that that becomes important in this discussion because at an individual level, I, I completely buy into the idea that there are some people in whom it is simply not possible to fix their adherence. They're putting themselves at great risks by, the, by their um, inability to do this. And if we can give a, an order to their chaos, um, then, uh, you know, this is a great win. And in fact, the, the benefit of the biologic on their healthcare use is lowered. But if we're kind of lazily prescribing biologics at that sort of cost, ultimately the, 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 uh, the people who subscribe to that insurance company are going to end up paying a higher premium. Um, and, and then that becomes a worry. And because there's an opportunity cost, if if the premium goes up, are people losing their coverage or are the insurance companies going to say, well, that's fine, but we can't afford this or we're going to cut some other aspect of a program. So, you know, it's it kind of unmasks the the 
atypical capitalist relationship of of um, of healthcare. And you know, in in most you know reasonable capitalist situations, um, there's a there's a supplier and a consumer, and if the good isn't if the goods aren't good enough, then the the consumer won't take it. But but in medicine, we we issue. Uh, prescriptions and services. <laughs> we don't, uh, we don't, um, uh, we don't take the money for the transaction. So, so, you know, it, it means that we can offer a service that maybe is literally 50 or 100 times more expensive, um, and, and not feel the, the, the loss of our revenue for it. If, 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 if I'm making myself clear. And I think that's the bit that really struck me about Matt's paper. And I was just wondering if you could, if you could think about that, Matt. I mean, what, What's what's the bigger societal implication? Because I completely get it, you know, on the one-to-one level. But what about the the the, the, the cost issue at a at a at a macro level? Yeah, I think it's big. Uh, just a couple of word about words about cost that 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 may not have been obvious, um, um, but but I think are important. So um, certainly there are direct costs, indirect costs related to asthma care, direct costs to medications, direct costs paying for hospitalizations for emergency departments for other medicines. Then the indirect costs, missed days work, missed days school, um, the, the cost it takes to travel to appointments and all those other things. And, and so all those costs are important. Now, the direct costs, however, in most of the asthma biologic studies that we've done with, the, with this database in particular, for asthma exacerbations, that primary outcome, primarily um, asthma exacerbations outcomes are defined as having an oral steroid burst. Um, eight, uh, roughly 80% of the asthma exacerbations identified in people who take biologics are simply having a short course of prednisone or methylprednisolone, not mm. emergency departments or hospitalizations. Yeah. And so the, and, and if you read, and if you look at the uh, trials for biologics, it's the same thing. It's very similar. There are very few uh, emergency department hospitalizations, the things that we might think would be perhaps worth a higher cost to prevent, not only because those people would be incurring a higher direct cost with an easy visit or with a hospitalization, but also those are the high risk, potentially um, the small number of people who have fatal asthma attacks are, are, are those are the ones we really want to prevent, uh, but these high, high, high risk individuals. Yeah. Now, preventing a patient who has maybe one or two short oral steroid courses, which are the direct cost for an oral steroid course is going to be like $3. The... Hmm. Um, Indirect costs may be a missed day work, uh, uh, some, some presenteeism, some poor sleep over several days. Hmm. There are some other indirect costs that matter that the system won't feel, but that patient will feel, society will feel. So I think that the, the idea that asthma exacerbations are these high cost, these high direct cost events, in most cases they're not. It's really teasing out, I think. We wrote another paper with this data set about, about selection of people for um, biologics, and we have some information in this paper as well about it, it it seems like there are many people who are not having high-risk asthma events, ED hospital visits, who are going on these very expensive medications. And I think, to your point, Richard, these are people, I don't know that we're lazily prescribing biologics to these people, but they may not be targeted to the highest-risk sort of group. And and if we're going to justify this $30,000, $40,000 per year cost we really want to be preventing deaths. We want to be preventing hospitalizations. We want to be targeting to the highest risk. If the price were lower, say 10 times lower, if this were three or 4000 per year, 
then I think extending it to people to prevent oral steroid bursts would be more reasonable. Richard, I want to get your take on that, but also I want you to address the issue that Matt brought up in where he said that he didn't find a relationship between adherence and asthma exacerbations. Richard? Yeah, so the first one I think I would take is, um, I agree with you, Matt, um, and, and to, to layer a nuance on this, um, if, you, if you pull out from a, a, a PDC record on an individual patient um, that they haven't been taking um, their ICF, their inhaled corticosteroids regularly, and yet they're really running into trouble, like being admitted or frequently turning up to the to the ED. It it can be a really important red flag. It can be a small cohort within your asthma population, who for whom the barriers um, a part of the triad of why people are adherent or not adherent are particularly important. They can't, as it were organize their lives or they or they've you know they've really they're really struggling with you know managing their lives you know taking their treatment collecting their treatment or maybe affording their treatment and you know for a small number of those there's a really good rationale to say look we're going to put a blanket of care over you we're going to make sure that we schedule you for an appointment the nurse practitioner or the administrator of the, the medicine gives you a call two three days beforehand you know all the barriers to getting access are lowered and and you keep that person safe, and that's a really good value of, uh, of medicine. And Ruth Green um, uh, and colleagues in Leicester published a, a, a paper in the Lancet Respiratory uh, on a particular case of a patient who had, a, you know, had a very chaotic life and who was turning up with a lot of eosinophilic rich asthma attacks. And 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 there was uh, and and her insurance company or her system had had turned down a biologic because of in, because of poor adherence and uh, and sadly this case uh, this poor young woman uh, passed away from an asthma attack so you know i i really think that what you're you were we're turning a um a really nice piece of research that you've done man into an individual story and and i think i can really make your point is really well made um, in terms of the softer cases, you're right. I mean, people are uh, the threshold for getting onto biologics is, is it, for some practitioners is lower than others. But there is a third nuance which I think we need to also bring into our thinking, which is um, David Price's work showing that from from these large uh, databases from general practice followed over time that multiple short courses of oral corticosteroids whilst they're cheap, uh, have a massive long-term health consequence in terms of if you've uh, more than a gram of oral steroid taken in your life, um, you're, you've, you're doubling, if not quadrupling, risks of all of the kind of the Cushing's-related side effects, osteoporosis, diabetes, hypertension, ischemic heart disease, stroke. Um, and so, you know, there, there, a, a time may come in the next couple of years where we're really saying, um, four, six, eight courses of steroids, that, that's your lot. We've got to figure out some way um, to attenuate this. Either we're going to phenotype you better or we're going to really ensure your adherence is good um, or we're going to start you on a biologic. Um, and and um, back to the point of, like, the societal responsibility is 50000 too much to be paying for this. Um, um, so I think they those are, are two very important points. Now, to your question about the... Um, the lack of effectiveness. I, I, um, I don't have an explanation for it, and I think uh, you know Matt's uh, talked about it, and it may well be that the people were poorly phenotyped between COPD or um, that they weren't having that many exacerbations, so you're not going to see that signal in there. But one way or another, it points to something where you may need a greater stewardship 
of your biologic prescribing, and I and I and I don't want to interfere with clinicians' practices, but but that would be a message that I think came out of that. If 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 an insurance company are reimbursing for very high end biologics, and we don't have a good system for accounting for that, uh, and and in particular seeing a good clinical uh, lift after somebody started three six months afterwards, then then that needs to be that needs to be uh, reconciled at you know at at some level. Matt, what is your take on that? I, I agree with all of those comments. I, I don't. Um, I, I, I do think that one of the drivers of the uh, the not showing that adherence to asthma biologics is linked to a reduction in asthma exacerbations is that I think people being selected for asthma biologics are milder than they should be. There are people who have not had asthma exacerbations leading to emergency department or hospitalizations. And for whatever reason, um, they are selected for biologics. This is where it's probably good to point out one of the limitations of this um, of this um, study design. With observational data like this, we don't really have a great sense of the day-to-day symptoms, the um, number of days missed school, missed work, some of those other things that really matter to patients that may drive some of the, some of the decisions to use biologics. So we, we tried to get at that a little bit by, you know, um, doing some analysis just for severe exacerbations, so in Table 5 in our paper. And then um, at the suggestion of an excellent reviewer, we looked at rescue inhaler fills as sort of a surrogate marker of maybe how frequently somebody's having symptoms. So we did a few other analyses to try to get at some of these different um, potentially patient-important outcomes for asthma. But really, we, we fall short of that in a study design like this to get all that kind of rich information. So even though somebody may not have had an asthma exacerbation in the six months leading up to biologic, there may have been some other really important things that we couldn't capture that drove those, drove those um, decisions. That said, we'd also come back and argue that asthma exacerbations have been the primary outcome for just about every biologic trial. And so we've captured what we think is, um, you know, that the primary outcome that many have, many have selected. There's kind of those those things to keep in mind as well with a study like this. Um, while we're on limitations, I may just add a couple more so um, people people know how to interpret the results. Um, th- this is, um, I think, the prescription and use uh, approvals by insurance for biologics are likely pretty unique to um, unique to um, insurers and to country. So this is a study of U.S and of commercially insured and Medicare Advantage insured people. This is not Medicaid. This is not um, outside U.S. And so those things, I think, need to be need to be kept in mind. Um, and then I think the other part that is pretty tricky here is that, um, and we've seen a, a slight shift in this, it, it's really the economics and the money that drive a lot of this, um, the selection. So there's a med- medicine benefit. There's a pharmacy benefit. And a patient can get the biologic um, paid for by by either one. And there's been a shift more um, from the medical to the pharmacy benefit that we saw over time during the study period. And I think a further shift, which is happening as well. So for some people, um, how it's paid for, uh, which benefit, the medical or pharmacy benefit, is really important for if they can, you know, how much they're going to pay for it um, themselves out of their pocket, if anything and whether they can continue taking that medicine because if they're bearing a fair amount of the, of the cost with um, cost sharing, they may not be able to continue on the medication. Or 
maybe they don't show up every four weeks, but they show up every eight weeks because that's what they can afford. Hmm. Richard, what were your impressions from the limitations and how would you address them in future studies? Well, um, I think Matt's done a great job and, and he has raised some really interesting points about um, uh, ab- about uh, the, the fact that we, we can't really sort of get at the per-person level um, and we're agnostic to, you know, how individual decisions were made. Um, uh, I, I think one, uh, one important um, uh, issue, because biologics are going to take off over the next four or five years, driven firstly by the fact that there's quite a lot of them, and secondly, because people are, I think, going to become more careful of the of of repeated uh, short courses of oral corticosteroids and the long-term consequences um i think uh i'm a great believer in 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 good research generating hypothesis and and i think everything that Matt's presented here becomes uh open for for um types of further studies in at a at an individual level i I'm a great believer that qualitative research is simply asking people about their their um, their um, motivations, both physicians and patients, is a really rife area in this biologics versus inhaled steroids. Um, I think there's some really interesting health economic studies to be done um, because Matt's uh, pointing out all of these um, you know different actors that are potentially uh, involved in the decision, but but. Health economics um, is a is a really you know exciting science, and there's there's really very very useful outcomes that could be done um, where one could really sort of assess well what what are the um, uh, what are the the cost benefits of these of these types of medicines and and I think in the end we probably need a, a randomized trial that um, that uses adherence data. Um, and says, right, well, look, um, we're not going to prescribe uh, or we are going to prescribe uh, on the basis that it's not that we're going to block you, but let's understand your adherence and see if at a personal level we can increase your adherence uh, before you give your biologic and see if that's more effective. Because that's kind of the conclusion, I think, of my, of, um, of uh, Matt's study. If you, if you have low adherence and you were randomized to a study in a limb that was um, specifically targeted to promote adherence, would you reduce uh, biologic prescribing with no difference in outcomes? Interesting. So, Richard and Matt, um, I do want to be mindful of your time. So, as we draw to the end of this podcast, I just want to give you a final opportunity for any concluding remarks or to cover anything that uh, you prepared for the podcast that we haven't had a chance to uh, discuss. So, I'll give Richard the first word and then I'll let uh, Matt finish it off. Richard? Well, Matt, I, I I don't have a comment really, and 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 Dominic, thank you so much for having me on and, and Matt chatting. I, I I'd love to know what you're planning on doing next, Matt, because I think this is a great um, uh, set of data that you're working off. Thanks. Um, I think one of the really important questions that are left here, and something that our team has been working on, is thinking about how generalizable some of the findings from trials are to um, our patients. So, I think you, you all may be familiar with um, a couple previous papers that suggest that most of the asthma patients that walk in our clinic door wouldn't be eligible for most of these trials because of uh, pretty strict uh, exclusion or inclusion criteria. And I think, in addition, 
these structured clinical trials where the opportunities for adherence are much higher and adherence is a, an important variable really makes some of the outcomes we see in practice perhaps different than what we see in trials. I, I, I'm, I'm, we're not there yet, but I'd really like to go in the direction of thinking about doing more pragmatic trials in biologics and get away mm -hmm. from some of these very strict inclusion-exclusion criteria where we build in adherence that would be maybe what we'd expect in the regular practice. Maybe we build in some adherence interventions within the pragmatic trial. Um, so I think it's, I think we need to blend yeah. a little bit more of what we do in practice into the clinical trial designs. Yeah, I agree. Great idea. Great. Well, it's been a really interesting uh, conversation, and thank you both for, um, I've learned a great deal. Um, so a very big thank you to Drs. Rank and Costello for a very stimulating conversation, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast.